Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. My name is Kevin Mo. I am in just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, I play music for a living. I used to be afraid to let go and open up my heart. Standing in the shadows, crying in the dark. Well, when you've won you know, five Grammy Awards and countless uh, Blues Association Awards, people start to view you as sort of the essence of what modern blues is. And there's kind of a responsibility there, um, especially when you're portraying these historical figures on screen because you've uh, done acting work, you've portrayed Howlin' Wolf on that Sun Records uh, movie, you did uh, that John Sayles movie, Honey Dripper, um, where he you played done, that. You done dug musician. way into that stuff now, man. <laughs> People start looking at you as what blues is. Like, do you think like that's a lot of pressure or like, do you embrace it? No, that's people like defining you and giving you a, you know, kind of putting you in a box. Right. And like, I'll accept that. I mean, I, I, I know people will put you in a box and that's okay. That's just the nature of people. What's, so what's Kevin Moe? Oh, he plays the blues. You know, okay, I do. <laughs> you know, but I'm gonna play something else too, and then they're gonna go like, "But you're supposed to be playing the blues." I know, but I'm gonna play this. No, I'm gonna do this. All right. Welcome back to the show on the road. My name is Zach Lupitin, your humble audio spirit guide. You might notice that we uh, launched our fourth season several weeks ago, and then all of a sudden there was radio silence. Well, there's a pretty good reason for that. Uh, my wife and I welcomed our first baby. Her name is July Jasper, and she's actually sleeping right behind me, and she's kind of like a delicious, adorable time bomb. So if she starts screaming, I might have to cut this short. I'm so glad I could welcome Kebmo, one of my heroes, onto the podcast, and I could wax poetic about how it's Black History Month. But really, I keep thinking about what having the blues and making the blues really is. I almost lost my wife several times these last few weeks, and I feel a deep pain in my heart. And really, the only thing that has consistently lifted me up every time, well, it's music, of course. And Kebmo's music lifts me up right now. You can go to our Instagram at Show on the Road Podcast to learn more about my wife's crazy journey and uh, send good vibes. We need them. Okay, without further ado, here he is now, Keb Mo. Now you grew up uh, near me in uh, in Compton here in L.A. Are you in L.A.? Yeah. yeah where are you at? West Side, like West L.A., Santa Monica. Yeah, that's where we uh, that's where we were living when we moved to Nashville. We're over in West L.A. 
right by the trader, right around the corner from the Trader Joe's. Very handy. Yeah. <laughs> as convenient as it is to have like a Trader Joe's and like a really awesome set of stores that you go to and you know what you're gonna get, um, I couldn't help but think about uh, your song. Um, more for your money, which I just discovered from the Blues Americana. Well, record. you'll be the first one. To, you'll be the first one to get that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that always strikes me about your music, obviously, people know you uh, coming up through the blues scene. Uh, you've been doing it for you know close to fifty years, uh, but you're sort of weaving these uh, pretty intense social commentaries into your music that seems kind of cheerful and upbeat and they are except that i love what i love about that song is that you're talking about you know i'm eating cookies and ice cream but uh we can't get anybody to have a decent job and all the places that i grew up going to have been decimated by these large chain stores and uh, how about some more cookies and ice cream Bernie made off with the rich folks' money. <laughs> right. How many blues artists are writing about Bernie Madoff right now? Yes, you know? that's, uh, that's, a, that's rich folks' blues. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't think that was very funny. Well, the dial is up, but the chips are down. And there ain't very many good jobs around. But it was a high price to pay to get more for your money to Last night I had a terrible dream I was eating me some cookies and some chocolate ice cream And the government didn't want to pay the debt And the whole damn country got repossessed It was a high price pay To get more for your money today It was a high price to pay To get more for your money today Harp on things. I like this one song in the song Oklahoma. You know, have you heard that song? The title track of the yeah. record? Yeah. That that one I just on the bridge I go like a and over on Greenwood, Archer and Pine. There's an elevated state of mind. You know, so keep on reaching for the sky because when they go low, we go high. That's a reference to the uh the Wall Black Wall Street massacre of nineteen twenty. You know? Right. But I just mentioned the streets, and the and the and the fact that there was a great things going on there. But I don't see anything about the massacre. You have to go figure out. If you Google Greenwood Archer and Pine, <laughs> you find it. You know, a lot of people like myself literally grew up not knowing what it was until we saw it on HBO's Watchmen. You know, uh, nobody which is nobody crazy, knew. You know, yeah, nobody knew. They 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 buried it in history. And, that, and it happened like a couple times, not in Oklahoma, but I think it happened in St. Louis and somewhere else. You know what I mean? Where that sort of thing happened. Gonna let everybody know that when the going gets rough, we get tough.
Well, and obviously, uh, L.A. had its own riots and its own uh, social upheaval. Um, Were you around here during the Rodney King situation? Oh, yeah. Yes, I was. What was that like? It was really, uh, it was before, I'm going to count my years back, it was before O.J. Right, a couple years before. Um, So Rodney King's kind of set the stage for O.J., because uh-huh. Rodney, Rodney King came along, and then this is like this is like business as usual in L.A., you know. But they finally they finally caught it on tape, you know. Right. We went to Compton people like you know L.A. South, South Central, been knowing this stuff for years, you know. But they finally caught it on tape, you know. And uh, and they went to court, and everybody's going like, oh yeah, now they finally got we got it on tape. Now these guys are gonna pay now, you know. And, and they all not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And it's like, that's the old thing, like, well, who are you gonna believe? Me or your eyes? <laughs> right. So it's all hell broke loose. And uh, so yeah, so then that was that was kinda like But you know, once again I'm a guy that's not gonna harp on all this stuff. You know? Right. These are isolated incidents that, you know, pub that that media, the public gets a hold of. And they have a field day with it sells lots of advertisement and it's a big right. thing and then things really really don't change all that much so now along comes oj right you know uh a man you know that that was the was, 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 which is the uh, so that was like rodney king was was uh, that was like everybody knew about that but the whole world got to see it finally, you know, and the riots and all that stuff. But the, uh, o- I mean, o- Oklahoma was a, a completely different different upheaval, you know. Right. That was that was not an upheaval of something happened. That was a that was like yeah, it, it was a kind of like Rodney King, but it was a big Rodney King, you know. But it was a jealousy. It was an upheaval of jealousy by the other side of town. Towards Oklahoma, towards the, the the black part of Oklahoma, which was fueled by s- segregation, you know. Right. The fact that the matter that the reason that they were so rich on the black Wall Street side was not that they were, you know, you know had anything any special privileges is that that they couldn't sh- shop on the other side of the town, you know. They weren't allowed over there, so they spent all their money in their own neighborhood. And what's happened when you spend all your money in your own neighborhood is that the neighborhood gets wealthy. Right, you know, like that big box store that came in and, you know, took out all the, you know, you know, the little mom and papa stores. You know, that doesn't really have a color. That's just economics, you know. Well, the new record uh, that you're putting out is a uh, remarkably, relentlessly upbeat. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, um, <laughs> which I think like we kind of need right now. Um, you know that title track good to be really brings you back to your neighborhood and sort of brings you back as an elder statesman looking at where you came from the neighborhood that made you strong um and you know that sort of everyone's moved away but it's sort of still the same in its heart you know and and i think you um gain strength from that um was that did that song come from coming back to la and, and seeing where you grew up 
Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it came out of that. I was over at the house, and it was, it was, it was last year during the, during the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. And actually, it was, it was one of those uh, co-writes that was introduced to me by my publisher. He connected me with a guy named uh, Magic um, Money Money Mark. His name was his name, you know. Mm-hmm. Money Mark, and he was uh, from the Beastie Boys. You know? Okay. And so we got together. We started talking. He's up in Echo Park, you know, you know, and like that that vibe. He's from that. He's from that neighborhood. So we should start talking about comparing notes about our neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to hop in the car, go downtown, grab a bike, and take a look around. Whole lot of things ain't what they used to be. I used to eat my fruit straight off the tree. Where'd you grow up? Uh, north side of Chicago. North side of Chicago. So, like, you know, you got, there's a certain thing in your neighborhood. Chicago is a real neighborhood city. You know? Right. You know? And your neighborhood is like, that's where you, you know, that's where you develop. That's where you, your friendship, your strong alliances and friendships and, and how you view the world is a lot about that. So we started talking about that and he started talking about Eagle Rock and we started talking about Compton. I think, he, I think he's from Gardena. He might be from Gardena as well. Gardena is another one of those towns. It's right next door to Compton. It's just west of Compton. Gardena and um, so and now um, when I grew up when I when I when I moved to Compton I was seven years old and um, um, maybe it was six six or seven probably seven and um, it was it was uh, still mixed it was still a mixed community of white and black you know right and uh, and by the time I was you know came of age in high school it was pretty much all you know, all uh, uh, black, Latino, and Asian. You know, mm-hmm. so and, you know, so we, in that in that area. So like those, and now it's seventy percent uh, Latino. You know, and the Latinos in the neighborhood now, they're just like the the folks that we were. They're, they're us in the sixties. You yeah. know, you know, and it's great because I'm the I'm the, I'm the, I'm the guy on the block that's probably been there longer than anybody. There's one, maybe two people that's been there on the block longer than me, my family, you know. So I'm one of the the block elder statesmen that's been been there a long time, you know, my family, and uh, it's cool. It's just, it's just so cool, you know, to be there in that working working class working man environment, you know. People getting up, going to work in the morning, and being neighbors, and having to watch out which neighborhood you kind of go to, you know, which street you go down. Right. You know, cause I, I still know the neighborhoods now. Now you can go down the street and get your ass kicked, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing about growing up in you know a city like Chicago. You don't know where these like war zones are. You see it on TV. You read about it in the paper that. Chicago always has the most shootings and the most um, gun deaths, you know, gang violence. Same thing with L.A. But, like, in our little bubbles on the west side, you're like, oh, yeah, that's somewhere over there, right? And really, it's like a 15-minute drive, you know? And people are living there for generations and and, and experiencing this violence and this upheaval. In Compton, it's a two-minute walk. (laughs) Yeah. So like, but you st- it's still that same thing. You know where to go to keep 
generally safe, you know? And your and your parents are part of the, you know, southern migration of African Americans, you know, from the south to yes. the west. That's what the whole thing was. So in a sense, I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a migrated south, southern culture that was on the west coast. What did your dad do when you were growing up? He had odd jobs. He sold real estate. He worked at factories sometimes, and sometimes he was just trying to start his own business and things like that. He was kind of like a, my mother and father were divorced since I was like five years old. That must have been hard. Um, it's just what it was. You know, figured it yeah, out. I guess you I didn't know a, any different. I had a relationship with my dad, you know, and my mom, and it was it was that was normal for me. Because that was it happened when I was five, so I got used to it. So around 21, you start playing with uh, Papa John Creech. Um, how did that relationship start? Well, Papa John Creech was um, walking down the street on Adams Boulevard in L.A., right between Crenshaw and La Brea, and uh, him and his producer and his arranger were on their way to the Jet Set Cafe to get some food. It was a soul food restaurant called the Jet Set Cafe, right there. And uh, they heard us playing, rehearsing in this little storefront studio, and went in and heard us, and hired us. That's why you got to turn your amps nice and loud when you're rehearsing, you know. <laughs> That's all we knew back then was loud. <laughs> <laughs> did you want to play blues and you know sort of traditional American roots music, or did you think you were going to be more an R&B and, and rock and roll artist? Uh, I really didn't know. I just I, I I I've been eclectic in a sense since growing up. In in that like my musical tastes were always kind of eclectic. My first my my uncle who taught me guitar was kind of like a finger picker folk guy. Okay. You know, and uh, and the kind of records I was around were like, you know, Johnny Mathis and Nat King Cole and you know, right. jazzy kind of like pop pop old school records. And then I started playing calypso in a steel band. Mm. And uh, so I always kind of had oddball taste, and I played, you know, in the band at school, so we played classical at school. I played the French horn, you know. Yeah. So, so I was always, you know, it was a mix of whatever was going on. Then the Beatles came in 60, 64, you know, and that really yeah. just messed everything up. <laughs> <laughs> now we were really confused. So, you know, it was like, you know, and radio was different back then. You know, radio stations played everything. You heard everything on the top forty. You heard country, you know, pop, R and B, whatever was hot and selling. You heard the best of uh, what people were digging. So we all had like a a different kind of like a more rounded. I mean, we'd be we'd be playing Aretha Franklin, and we were playing like Cream too, you know. Yeah. In our bands, so we didn't care. <laughs> amazing is that there's certain guys from that era bridging sort of early rock and roll and uh, soul music, blues, folk. A guy like Taj Mahal, who you've teamed up with multiple times, um, you know, he puts out a record 1968 and you guys are playing one of those songs on that Taj Mo record, Diving Duck Blues Now, right? And it still feels like it was just created yesterday. You know? Oh, yeah. Taj Mahal, man, he's like, 
he's the ultimate like you know genre jumper yeah know? jumping around all in this rootsy kind of thing he, he jumps from like between blues because his roots are blues and Caribbean music mm-hmm. because his mother was from um, one of his parents I forget which one one of his parents is from St. Kitts and the other one's from uh, the Carolinas mm. you know so he's got this blues church reggae culture going around in him so he's he's a whole other different thing you know I love when he puts like three tubas in some of his recordings. <laughs> like he just has this like New Orleans backbeat. No bass, no drums, just like this deep tuba bass. <laughs> oh man, he's, he's behind him. Like I said, he's the ultimate. He, he just goes out and just, he just, you know, if you feel something, he'll just do it. Let's just do that. You know? And uh, Howard Johnson, the tuba ensemble, you know, that was with him during that time. Yeah, I love Taj. Taj Mahal was a great mind opener for me, you know, coming up. Opened my mind to like, especially with the blues, the blues was much more than just, you know, just Bobby Blue Bland and B.B. King, you know. Right. There's a whole lot to it. Ooh, y'all, I dive upon the bottom, honey, and I never come home. Well, the sun's gonna shine. My back door someday. You know the sun gonna shine on my back door someday. Well, now the sun's gonna shine on my back door someday. The wind's gonna rise and blow my blues away. What's cool about this collaboration that you guys did? is that a song like Diving Duck Blues, I think that might even be a traditional, right? I mean, that's like, goes back to the 20s, maybe. Um, that song has over 11 million streams, right? That's like a hit in today's parlance on online listening. So it's like that music can kind of keep coming around as the sound of our culture, the sound of our uh, energy, you know? It's like there's something about it that, like, people want. And it's this kind of blues where you're repeating the same stanza three times in a row, right? Uh-huh. And then you go in from the hook. It's almost like a haiku. Like, the, yeah. s- the simplicity of it is so powerful. You know, if the river was whiskey and I was a diving duck the river was whiskey and I was a diving duck. If the river was whiskey and I was a diving duck, I'd dive upon the bottom and baby, I'd never come up. Now, it takes a lot of restraint and a lot of like uh, <laughs> self-control to not like, oh, let's switch it up and just write different lyrics. It's like, no, it's going to be the same thing three times in a row until yeah. you get that hook. And it's what so satisfying when it gets there. That's what's so awesome about it. Oh, what's great about it is it's a it's a it's a, it's a two tiered verse. You say the, you say you say the verse twice, and then the third line is the hook. The second line is right. the hook. So it's constantly right. it's, it's, it's this mini version of like you know, verse verse chorus. You know, and uh, yeah, it's like, and the blues the blues is relevant because all of us came from the blues. You know, mm-hmm. rock pop country you know so when 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 you if you listen to popular music and you hear the origins be it blues 
country, folk, anything back there, it brings up, it resonates in you and you don't know why. It's because the whole thing we're doing is built on that. Team up with a group like Old Crow Medicine Show on that really fun track, uh, The Medicine Man. You can see how white artists in the South have been playing that in string band music for a hundred years, right? A lot of those early bluegrass and uh, you know mountain music from Virginia, Tennessee—it's just white blues, right? Twisted in a different is. way. <laughs> And now, like, and you see, like, you know, it's 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 like a blues is people 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 want to want to want to like claim make make claim the things people like are kind of territorial, you know, in their taste in music. Right. And, you know, the rappers come out, you know, and um, uh, you know, it's all black for a while. Then then up comes, you know, Eminem. You know, uh-huh. wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's what happens. You know, you start doing the blues and. You know, up comes, uh, you know, Mike Bloomfield and Johnny Lang and these guys, Jimmy Vaughn and Stevie Ray Vaughn, and along with me, up comes, you know, because they love Albert King and they love B.B. King and they love, you know, that old blues stuff because it's it's the real, it's real, you know, it doesn't have a color. It's just real stuff the way Ray Charles loved country music, you know, and he did that whole country thing Mm -hmm. back in the 50s, you know. It's real stuff. I think real always wins. Just waiting on the medicine bay. 
I remember my dad's um, record collection was in the side closet in my room back in Chicago. And one of the albums that was always at the front, which I always looked at, was the King of the Delta Blues Robert Johnson collection. Wow. You know, and that sort of haunting, ghostly, high sound that he got with his voice and his guitar, like the, they were kind of like weaving together down this mm-hmm. dark road. Um, when did you start playing and listening to Robert Johnson? I started playing with listening to Robert Johnson when I got hired for a play. I was playing electric blues primarily up mm-hmm. until '91, uh, you know, '92 round in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a call because not in LA. In LA, as you know, I mean, I don't know. Back in, in the '90s, um, the blues in the pop world. Blues was kind of like a curse mm. because I wanted to get gigs. I wanted I wanted to be on the Janet Jackson gig or the Madonna gig, you know, playing uh-huh. guitar, you know. Yeah. But I was way down on the list on a lot. So if you played the blues, that was for sure you weren't going to get any of those gigs. <laughs> you know, you had to you had to know how to play pop styles and things and do that kind of yeah. stuff, which I knew how to do. But I was still way down on the list. There was guys that could do that better. And so the blues in L.A. was kind of like almost like a curse. But, and so guitar players weren't playing the old Delta stuff, you know. They weren't, they weren't playing it, you know. And I started doing it, and I got gigs in theater. So I, I, was, okay. I, got, I learned how, I learned Robert by playing by Robert Johnson by messing around with the theater community. Because you know, they were dealing all, dealing all this Ma Rainey stuff and, and, um, you know, a lot of old things from the 20s and things. Blues and old music would collide into those areas, so they needed someone to play it live on stage. So I became a guy who could do that, play the blues live on stage, the old old style finger pick and slide and stuff like that, and show up on time and, you know, know my stuff. And, you know, that was it. So that's I, was, I came in by, by, by necessity, you know, but the precursor to that was I was studying the blues. I was just into the blues. What did he say? Some folks tell me all blues ain't that. I got what's the feeling that I ever had. Some folks tell me all blues ain't that. Well, you know, I got the what's the feeling. That I, that I ever heard. <laughs> but when I got to hear Robert Johnson, now now I'm in 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 a, in a master class, you know. Right. Listen to Robert Big Bill Brunsby and starting to listen to the Muddy the Plantation records and Muddy Waters and starting to get into Blind Boy Fuller and Reverend Gary Davis and all that stuff. Now 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 you're in it. You're really in it because that's where that's where all those other guys, BB King, and uh, they came from Mississippi. They came from down in those places. And that's those are the people that they listening to. It's like listening to an Eric Clapton record and going, okay, God, that's good. But when you hear a B.B. King record or one of those Albert, Albert King records, you go, oh, well, I better listen to that because that's where, that's where Eric Clapton got it from. Right. So, so now you go back down to the Delta. So now you don't want to listen to the other guys anymore because you know the B.B. King, that's where he got it from, <laughs> you know? How did Scorsese find out about you? 
Um, I think Scorsese, um, I don't know how he found out about me, but I think he uh, wanted to do this thing on the blues and and he called some people to rally up the troops, you know, and I was in the mix, so I got to participate in that. Steve Jordan was a musical director on that thing. Oh, cool. So I know Steve Jordan, he called me to have to do that. That record that uh, came out in 94, uh, Martin Scorsese Presents, Kev Mo, you know, there's that song Perpetual Blues Machine, which I love, you know, about falling in love with someone who's going to, like, continuously drag you into these tough situations that are just going to keep keep the songs flowing, whether you want them or not. Perpetual Blues Machine. That was that was inspired by a, you know where I started this, that song. I started writing that song was at the Shakey's Pizza on San Vicente and uh, Fairfax. Yeah, still there. Yeah, Shakey's Pizza. I was in there at a, at a birthday party. I went to the b- birthday party, taking my older son. You know, he's uh-huh. 34 now, but he was like a little kid. Shakey's Pizza's Pizza's birthday. And I went in there and there's all women. You know, <laughs> and I'm in there with uh because I was a you know it was a you know, split up father, split up from my wife, and so I have my turn to take him to the birthday party, and I go in there and all the women are in there, and I'm going, this is like a perpetual blues machine in here. <laughs> we could have been just fine if you'd have only been all mine. I was for real, but you did not know. That you were stepping on my heart as you were walking out the door. Now I know just who you are. And it's a damn good thing we didn't get too far. I'm not the one that's right for you. You need a man to do your rolling like you want him to do, baby. Why you want to be so cold? Why you want to be so And let your true color show You're a perpetual blue machine Who knew that Shakey's birthday parties Could inspire yeah. classic blues tunes? Yeah, but I don't know why this is kind of a, a Shakey Shakey's Pizza That's an L.A. thing They don't have Shakey's all over the Shakey's is I don't L.A. Think so. You know? But that song reminds me of Something that I feel like If Robert Johnson had grown up and like maybe had a more modern sound mm-hmm. this is something that he would have created it's yeah. like based in that mm-hmm. sort of finger pick rustic style and then it's elevated into something well, a little edgier and a little more modern funny you say about that because that in, in a sense when i listen to all those guys you know modern blues like more like the chicago and the delta guys and uh, i could have went on a big study and tried to become like a blues scholar you know, and know all right. the styles. But I figured if I was back there in the 40s or the 30s or the 50s or somewhere like that, I would be trying to find my own style. I wouldn't be trying to copy those guys, you know. Right. I'll, I'll be trying to go like, I'm going to find my style of the blues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so I kind of like pictured myself as one of those guys. And I, I'd grab a few licks from this guy and that guy, kind of like, things and then I proceeded to like just sit down and just play and blend everything that I had learned before you know where it's like looking at the Mickey Baker book you know and uh, you know and the things that I had learned from guitar lessons and stuff and start kind of like combining 
things, you know, and then eking, eking right. out a style for myself very quickly. You know, because this time I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm over the hill in terms of getting a record deal. So I started, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I got to work fast here. Create an identity going there. Well, especially on this new record, I mean, a lot of it is very, uh, I think, pop. You know, it's just straight kind of fun, upbeat music that could be on the radio yeah. in a variety of uh, different genres. Um, yeah. I do dig that uh, that song, Good Strong Woman, you did with Darius Rucker. Um, now, you have kind of a history of creating songs hinting that maybe there should be a woman in charge, like you did with Roseanne Cash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> maybe uh, us guys have screwed things up. Can we... Uh, <laughs> pass the baton to the ladies, um, which, yeah. again, is probably not very typical of blues <laughs> styles, which, to be real, kind of have a history of misogyny and, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm going to shoot. I'm, 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 I'm going to beat my woman till, till, till I'm satisfied. That stuff like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm a man. <laughs> Turn 21, yeah. When I lie, line, I shoot, never miss. <laughs> Stuff like that. It's very misogynistic. It's very macho. But, you know, in the blues, you can get away with that. In the blues, you can get away with, like, my woman hurt me, and, and uh, you know, and now she's, you know what I mean? You can have revenge. But in pop music, the women do that. Taylor Swift has made a yeah. good deal. You know what I mean? She goes Ten-minute right, you know, song on SNL about... She, she go right in Being on Being wronged by Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. <laughs> but the Good Strong Woman track, you kind of turn it around saying, you know, maybe it's going to work out this time. Yeah. Maybe I know. got someone who has my back who's going to be there for me because um, life can be hard and she's going to make it better, you know. And that's well, that's kind of what falling yeah. in love is all about. You know, this person who's going to right your ship when it's sinking. Yeah, it's like the problems that come up in your life there's two people that got their eye on it. Uh-huh. You know? Life can be kind of hard on a man. You're gonna need a good strong woman that's got your back. Feel your back up when you're out of gas. A good strong woman goes a long, long way. Makes the right now better than the yesterday. Like when you write a song, write a song, I like writing, co-writing, because there's two people that have their eye on it. They mm-hmm. go like, oh, I don't know about that line out there. Let's, 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 let's dig in a little deeper, you know? And uh, I, when I work, I work with Chuck Lorre on this uh, show, Be Positive, you know, and I talk with him. I go have talks with him, and, you know, and uh, he says, things get better. The more people, the more people have their eye on it that know what they're doing, you know, the better a product mm-hmm. gets. You know. But if we go back to that uh, Put a Woman in Charge track you did with Roseanne Cash off the Oklahoma record, um, again, it's it's very positive and uplifting, but you're hinting at what could happen if we don't put this woman in charge, right? We're on the brink of disaster. Uh, she's got the power to change the rules, and if we keep following these rules, yeah. it's just, it's going to be the end. You know, and she is, she is not the woman. Put a woman in charge. I, I, to me, put a woman in charge, because women, I mean, women are smarter than us, but they're falling prey and victim to the same things that men are falling prey to. 
given the chance, mm-hmm. you know. And so put a woman in charge is, is more about not the woman, but it's a part. Let's get a new perspective. Let's get a new. Let's let's see what the women have to say. Right. You know, not like in charge because they can do the same thing men can do. But let's 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 listen to each other. Is the message I was really trying to portray. I love that song. I, I, I love performing that song. I think it's a really cool song, and I like I like to watch the men uh, when I if I ever perform it, kind of fold their arms, start sitting there going, like, <laughs> right "Squirm there. in their seats when a little say, bit." Put a woman in charge. <laughs> <laughs> When you performed at the White House for Barack and Michelle, um, did you feel like progress was actually happening in this country? Um, what was it like being there? What was like being there was like what was what was great about being there was being there. Yeah, you know, it's like I always when 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 Barack started running for president, you know. I, I was like, um, I didn't think he could pull it off, you know. Uh-huh. And um, it was first presented to me by an actress named Alfie Woodard. You know, Alfie Woodard, the actress. You know, we okay. in the House of Blues somewhere. She goes, "Hey, Kevin," she says, um, "We're starting to get Kevin. We're gonna get behind Barack Obama. He's gonna run for president, and we're behind him, and we're gonna we're gonna get this done." I was like, uh-huh. I was like, "Oh, Alfie, you sure?" This is- <laughs> Right. This, country, this country's still pretty white. <laughs> you know what I mean? And she was like, and I, and I think when I looked in her eyes and she was telling me that this was going to happen, I was, I'm pretty sure she made it happen. Hmm. I wow. Her, she was like, the way she she, she likes like, she's like, we're going to get Barack Obama in the White House. And I was going like, I was the bitch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. She was in it, man. And then I, I watched it go and I watched the whole thing happen. I was like, holy moly. You know, this is about, this This might go down. You know, it was it was great being in the White House during that administration and the feeling that it was in, you know, and the, and the hopefulness, you know, about it. You know, being the first, you know, African-American, you know, couple, president and first lady in the White House. It was great being in there and bearing witness to that, the feeling of hope and all the kids that got to go there. Like I did some things with Michelle Obama where she'd bring all these kids. She would just bring she'd bring kids from Chicago and kids from all kind of underprivileged, you know, neighborhoods and droves, you know, of all races, you know. And she was she was really really working to get those kids, um, you know, let them see this. You know, she wanted all of them to see you know, this administration in the White House, you know. And uh, the progress about that presidency was the greatest thing that happened was that he got elected. Like my son, it was, it was like um, three or four years old, 
you know, mm-hmm. during that three, like three. And the first president he saw, the first president he saw get elected was Barack Obama. It's pretty good. You can't undo that. You know what I mean? You know, he now that's possible for him. So a lot of little kids of different races saw Obama get elected. And so now you can't undo that. Yeah. Now they can see that that's possible. And what happens is, is that it, in a way it opens up society a little bit more, you know, and society becomes a little less tolerant of, of bigotry and, and, you know, and unfairness and, you know, all kind of things, you know? And, um, so it's a good thing. And being in that white house for me was very inspirational to me. And I took my son, my wife, and we went, and my son got to meet Obama. You know, mm. he was, he was like five years old. There he is shaking the president's That's hand. awesome. You know? Yeah. What was more intimidating Performing at the White House or performing on the West Wing for Aaron Sorkin? Oh, uh, at, at the White House, you know, because I was I was I was actually sitting next to Aaron Sorkin, and the thing I was I was there like he was in Rome back, and and uh, but the most intimidating thing in performing was when Michelle came in. <laughs> right, she has got an awesome presence, you know. You know, I wish she a, would run. You talking about you talking about a good strong woman who's got your <laughs> yeah. back. That's that's what I'm talking about right there. Yeah. You know, there's no you know just you had her presence makes you very out of that. I, I actually like I'm never shaking on my hand actually kind of starts shaking. You know hmm. when she, the actual performance when she came in, I was like holy you know because you know had every, every great man is a good woman and Michelle Obama is at least as awesome as Barack Obama, <laughs> you know? Maybe more. Do you ever get, have you ever gotten starstruck seeing a musician that you really admire? Um, the only time I ever got starstruck, really starstruck, was not a musician. It was, um, believe it or not, I, I just, um, Regina King. Mm. She walked up to me at some. I was in Atlanta, and she just we were at an event. She was in. She walked up to me and she says, "Hey, Kim Martin," and I, I, I lost my mind. <laughs> I went like, "Oh, pretty cool." <laughs> like, you know, because like right. some actors, I really have, I really respect great acting. Yeah, you know, people do great things because that's the thing. I, I think musicians. I've met a lot of musicians, but meeting actors because they do it. They play music without an instrument. You know, when you've been around as long as you have. You know, you were writing songs and, and doing A&R work for close to 15 years before you actually put your first self-titled record out in 94. How do you remember lyrics and songs and melodies that go back a generation of time? You know, do you have I sort can, of a, I a, have a master memory. list of songs? I've always had really bad memory, even when I was a kid. Cause, you know what I mean, I couldn't hold on to things, but... I can hold on to things that are truthful, that really strike me. Like, you know, the words that when I fall in love, you know, mm-hmm. they just won't fall out of my head. You know, when I fall in love, it will be forever. Or I'll never fall. I mean, for me kids. And certain songs, that if it's a really true resonating kind of thing, like my own songs that I write are easy to remember. But remembering someone else's song is really difficult for me. Sometimes 
I see songs of yours. Um, I see a song like The Itch as almost like a mini movie, right? Yeah. And like, yeah. you just press play and you go into this dark club and you see this guy with his guitar. And it has almost kind of this Latin groove, you know? Forget about the money, the lawyers, and the pain. You're going to do that same damn thing all over again. You know, it's like this endless cycle of bad habit. And we can't get out of falling in love, falling out of love, losing love. It's that powerful. That's how powerful love is. You know, we we can listen to this love song. It's the itch. Yeah, it's the itch. (laughs) Fever. The vapors. (laughs) And Father, if you're able... Don't let me do the same damn thing all over again You get the fever, you get the itch And you forget about the mess you were in You forget about the money, the lawyers and the pain And do the same damn thing all over again Where did that song come from? Well, I've been divorced twice, you know, and so, and uh, I got my clock cleaned, you know, and uh, <laughs> a couple times, you know, been divorced, you know, and, uh, but that's, but, you know, it's like, you go in and you just kind of go, you still, you still can't resist it, you know, there's a chemical, it's like, yeah. it's like, you know, falling in love is really like a, a temporary insanity, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> You know, it's like being it's yeah. the same chemical to being as being insane. You know, it's the it's the it's the urge that keeps the population going. It's the it's the natural urge. <laughs> yeah. That, you know that's what when, so when you forget about the lawyers, the money, and the pain, because you do. Yeah. I feel like the song on the new record that is related to the itch in some way is uh, "Dressed in Blue." Feels yeah. like an old noir, like you're dropped into this. Mm-hmm sort of dark bar. Yeah. There's cigarettes burning lamenting. in that song. There's cigarettes and, and scotch being drank, you know? <laughs> it's like something real bad just happened and you're trying to wrap your head around it. <laughs> you told me you loved me. <laughs> I thought you was for real, you know, but the fact is you didn't want, really want me. You know? Yeah, I don't know, just... I know I can hear those lyrics. I know that 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 song really rings really, really right. You know, because it's it's, it's it's in the spirit of the the fifties and the sixties blues. You know, like a Bobby mm. Blue Bland kind of song. thrill is gone you know it's like yeah. just kind of uncomfortable everything has gotten real yeah. 
nasty. You, just, you talk about her like, you know, like the fact is you told me about your boy, old boyfriend and you broke it off because you wanted to be free. But the fact is he really didn't want you. <laughs> and now you're yeah. just settling for me. <laughs> you know, it's getting there dirty. Yeah. All right, let's say that you play a show that it could be any five artists throughout history, dead or alive. Who would that bill include, and where would you perform if you could perform anywhere in the world? Do I have to perform with them? <laughs> you do could just uh, MC, maybe. Do I have to be on the show? Yeah, you should play a few songs. I could be the whole. This is a fantasy. You can do let's, whatever you let's want. Let's say I can be just for me. I could be on it. Okay. Okay. Um, it would be um, Gladys Knight, okay. Johnny Guitar Watson. All right. Shirley Caesar. Who's that? Gospel singer. Okay. Shirley Caesar. Um, uh, Bob Marley. Okay. And uh, and Taj Mahal. I go see that tour. <laughs> Yeah. Most people, when I ask a question like this, they have to think about it for 10 minutes. You, like, had those artists, like, queued up. Like, you've been thinking about this before, maybe. Well, I, I know who my... I know, I, I, there's certain artists I high, heard in high, high regard. Like, Johnny Guitar Watson had a 50s blues career and a 70s blues career. Mm. You know? Both of them very valid. You know, he went to the mm. straight blues and he came out with another kind of an R&B blues and was successful twice. And he was a great musician, great piano player, great voice, and just fantastic. And uh, and I know, and I know in terms of gospel, no one can follow Shirley Caesar. <laughs> mm. She is the the epitome of the flat foot gospels singing just no not a whole bunch of runs and stuff just like just in your face just like uh, just god fearing gospel yeah. preaching woman you know yeah and uh bob marley was the best concert i've ever been to in my life mm. where'd you see him i saw him at ucla at Pauley pavilion wow and in like 1980 i mean god it was ooh. I was like, God damn, you know, it's just great. The groove in that place and the spiritual vibration mm. that was in the room and the and the and the and the audience that was there that came to see him was just the whole thing was just so perfect. I have to uh, I can't end this conversation without thanking you for uh lending lending your guitar to our Dust Bowl revival track, Honey, I Love You, which is I think one of my all time <laughs> favorite recordings. And the funny thing is when you sent that rhythm part at first we were totally confused we were like wait did is he playing on a different song because we had never ever had this sort of almost tropical caribbean bounce behind it it was like a soul song yeah all of a sudden it had this like beach sunshine vibe and at first we were like i i think this is not gonna work like maybe we should just like cut it out and just do a couple of his licks in there and then i started listening to it the next day and being like oh now I can't hear the song without it like it doesn't work without Kev's guitar <laughs> it's like this perfect tasty little groove that just like kind of threads the whole thing together yeah. 
Yeah, I, I put, I put, I'll put something on it. I think, think works, and that was a, that was that. I remember that was a stretch to do that, that rhythm part, rather than doing something that you could go feature, because basically I'm, a, I'm a, I, I, rhythm guitar is where the money is. You know, uh-huh. you know what I mean? When I say the money, it's like the rhythm guitar, like and like you know, like the, I mean, like Chuck Berry. You know what I mean? The rhythm guitar parts, you know, are at least as important as the lead part of the parts. I mean, more because they set the whole thing. And you can take a guitar, any rhythm, the drums, and you can really solidify or bend something in a way that's, you know, make it more a little more interesting, a little more like a little more body in it or something, you know? Yeah. You know, and and um, a lot of people don't put a lot of credence in rhythm guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, in rhythm in general, you know, it's more like about I don't know, some loosey goosey, but no, I you know rhythm guitar, I man, that's my thing. <laughs> When you first started playing in your 20s, did you think that you'd be still touring the world? Did you think you'd still be touring the world and be this busy when you were in your 70s? I thought I'd be done by 30. I thought that I would have, like, just... Because remember the whole saying back in the 60s, don't trust anybody over 30? (laughs) 30 was a place where, like, you became an old person. You know? Right. 30 was old. 30 is nothing now. Like, you you know, yeah. back then, don't trust anybody over 30 was like, because 30 year olds were already like indoctrinated into the system. They were already wearing a tie and, and uh, you know, uh-huh. and, and cut their hair and they're already like square and had sold out, you know? And so I figured if I hadn't made it by 30, I still got time to go in and get a job and save my life and, you know, so I don't end up like, you know, a failure in life. What job would you be working, you think? If I had went to straight and narrow, I would have been an architect. Hmm. You no. Know, but because I just veered off and did music, I, I stopped my architectural, you know, study, and I went off to be a musician. I just went off because people just called me. I, I just really stopped because they said, let's go play. Okay, let's go play. I just forgot about school. Yeah. <laughs> music is intoxicating, man. It's like and, you can't. Yeah. So Stop I it once if, it starts rolling I, within you. I figured if I, if I hadn't made it by 30, that pretty much it was over. And 30 came and went. 40 came and went. <laughs> you know? And I was still in it. And just finally, at about 39, I think I said, fuck it. You know, I'm staying in for the long haul. You know? That's when things turned around. Because I kind of always had one foot in music and the other foot out the door, hmm. you know? So, and, yeah. then I, and that's how I sounded musically. I sounded like I had hmm. one foot out the door, but I didn't really realize that. So when I put both foot in it, you know, right. there was a, like a an attitude change. You know, now I had to make it work. And then that's when the things just, things got much better in the, the next two years. And it led into, like, you know, getting the record deal on Sony. You know, it was like I changed my attitude and things just Mm. went. So the thing about 30 was a fallacy. Like, that you you know, after 30, you're done. 
you know, when any age when you change, when you wake up, that's your age when you can go. And I woke up in my late 30s. Were you able to ever play or meet Bill Withers before he passed? Oh, yeah. I didn't play with him. He had stopped playing by the time I met him. But he was, um, I met him and hung out with him. Uh, we played at the, um, the uh, what's that place on Wilshire? The, um, it's on Wilshire and La Cienega. Sabine, something like that. Sabin Theater. Sabin yeah. Theater. And I called Bill. Say, I mean, we're over there. He said, I'm coming down. (laughs) For some reason, he just came down. And Bill Withers was in the dressing room talking with the band about it. And the band was just freaking out. They're going, like, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. And he was having a ball talking about all kinds of shit, just talking shit and holding court, you know. And um, yeah, yeah. if there's one songwriter for me, and he was was walking through the crowd, crowd. Nobody, because he, he's real unassuming, you know? Yeah. And he's a big, tall guy. So, you know, he was just unassuming. He walked through, walked right out, and just went, you know, about his business. There's just something about his writing, the simplicity, the directness, the soulfulness. Mm-hmm. Every time a song comes on, these songs are 40, 50 years old now. Yeah. They just seem like they're part of your life right now yeah. right and you covered lean on me on this new record uh, and we can go out with that if you like um, that song feels like the pick me up you need in every generation it doesn't matter when it comes on and he's from West Virginia yeah coal miner that's the coal miner you know what I mean he's from the yeah. earth he's from the you know West Virginia not Virginia West Virginia which is the yeah and uh, he's got that church thing, the soul thing, and you know, and uh, he's real. And you know, he told me, he told me, he said, he said, he said, all those songs. I said, I did all that in a seven-year period, mm. from 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 Ain't No Sunshine till you know, all that was in a seven-year period. It's like the Beatles, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, how long have I been doing this? I've been at it like 25, just recording. I'm I'm, I'm damn near 30 years, you know, just being a recording artist you know and I ain't done nothing like that (laughs) (laughs) there's still time yeah there is there is that man 
Big thanks to Keb Mo for talking to me. You can go to kebmo.com for his newest record, Good To Be. And uh, he's actually the featured artist on our parent site, thebluegrasssituation.com. So lots of amazing stuff about him all month long. As I mentioned at the top of this program, uh, the last few weeks have been among the hardest of my life. Um, my lovely daughter sleeps behind me, ready to uh, go off at any moment. But as I have the beautiful silence here, I will tell you that uh, I really appreciate all the well wishes uh, from Dust Bowl Revival fans, from friends and family across the world, and uh, all the donations that have poured in on our GoFundMe page, which you can find at our Show in the Road podcast Instagram bio link. Uh, my wife, Taylor, is a true champion. She is fighting like heck to get home to our little one. She's still in the hospital four weeks in. And uh, again, it hurts to say that, but um, we're going day by day here. I'm on very little sleep, and I'm super grateful that uh, my folks and uh, Taylor's mom have helped out so much, my sister and uh, all the friends who have gathered around us. It takes a village, they say, and they're right. And uh, maybe some really good blues will come out of this. But until then, uh, I'm going to sign off and say thank you for listening. Uh, tell your friends and family about this podcast. It means so much to be able to share the music that I love. And uh, very soon, I might actually have a weekly radio program at KCSN 88.5 in L.A. I know it's not financially responsible to fall in love with music and try to make that your life, but I'm going to keep on trying. So, the Show on the Road podcast is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lubiton, and we're a part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, and we'll see you on the trail. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.